think that takes those people who have that intersectionality like you as you know because you were a, a, a star on the uh, the first episode of it was innovation squared which we did during covid funded by amgen um and it was this idea that people who work on a molecular level don't often get to talk with people who are working on innovation on a on an external um more engineering driven level and um and that during COVID, we were in these Zoom calls running through agenda that where we would just be hitting things off and taking things off a list of things to do and then jumping on another Zoom call and running through another agenda. But what we were missing were those in-between moments where we met people outside of our direct circle of influence or our direct team, right? And with our direct team, we are of like minds to some extent in the work and we uh, don't know what we don't know and we're working towards innovation, but it's probably incremental. But if we're forced to have a conversation with someone, even within the same company who works in a different section, but certainly with people outside, like if you're talking to relatives, etc., when you're talking about what you do as in terms of research, you have to do it to talk about it in a way that's relatable. This episode's guest is Elliot Kotek. Um, I am so excited to introduce Elliot to, to everyone on this podcast. Elliot is a longtime friend of mine. He's an Aussie, he's an innovator. And uh, the reason I wanted to chat with Elliot is I, I genuinely have never met a person who has caused disruption and innovation in so many different fields as, as Elliot. Elliot continues to go down in history as, as one of the people that I want to be when I grow up. And, uh, and so I really wanted to bring him onto the podcast to chat about his incredible career the projects that he's been involved in and his personal philosophy around creating innovation uh, wherever he goes. Um, one of the things that, that people should be able to take away from this incredibly informative episode is how much of innovation is, is truly a repeatable process. You know, Elliot will, will talk us through mantras that he has and philosophies that he has that really show you that you can operationalize innovation and that when your heart is in the right place and when your need and desire for impact is in the right place, innovation becomes very, very easy. This is Disrupting Innovation with Dr. David Petrino. So welcome to uh, Disrupting Innovation. This is a podcast that is all about trying to answer the question of why does healthcare innovation take so long? So why are there cures out there that could be helping people? Why are there innovations that we heard about flash in a pan and then they never went anywhere? What and what can we be doing <clears throat> to speed these things along? I'm really excited to have you on because I feel as though um, your career has spanned so many different verticals and you've seen so many different things. Um, I'm also, you know, incredibly proud to have worked with you on a bunch of projects. Um, but I also want to dig into some of those projects fairly critically because I feel as though um, a lot of the projects that, um, that I get involved in, um, you know, they're amazing at face value, but then what's the overall impact? What did they change? 
these are the sort of self-effacing questions that I ask myself, um, especially for a, a, a project that doesn't completely disrupt um, a way of, of doing something. So that's really what we're about today. And I'm really thrilled to have you on. Um, I can never keep up with all the things you're doing. And so I think it's easier for everyone if you just explain yourself <laughs> to everyone and all the things that you do. Yeah, I mean, what I love about the question coming from you is that it applies equally to you. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, I, I have a company here in Los Angeles, based in Los Angeles called The Nation of Artists, but most of our work takes us all around the world. Um, a lot, And it's really about I mean, storytelling has become a bit of a cliche word even by itself, so I don't even like using it anymore. But we create content and campaigns that move the needle. Um, our North Star is impact. We are driven by a formula that ideas plus empathy equal impact um, on both sides of the camera, that the way we work and the way we um, bring people together to collaborate um, and the way we respect those people, hopefully, um, or, and definitely intentionally, is to uh, provide as much empathy to where people are coming from and where they stand, um, as well as recognizing that empathy alone doesn't get us there. If we're sitting on a couch holding someone's hand or um, crying alongside them and uh, feeling all the things that they feel, it's good to acknowledge that, but at some point you also need to put things and frameworks and ideas in place to move us forward um, and move them forward um, in order to have an impact in that scenario. And so we try and make sure that we've got that combination of ideas and empathy uh, at all time. And likewise, I don't think ideas and some of this may apply to apply to some of the projects that we have worked on together in the past, but some of the ideas that might be brilliant if they lack a certain type of empathy, also don't have lasting impact. Uh, they might have an intentionality that's good, that's not malicious. Uh, they might have messaging that's fantastic and potentially inspiring. But if there's not enough listening going on or intentionality behind the empathy part of it, uh, then maybe they're not as successful as they could be. Um, so for us, that means anything, like in terms of content, like I know that some people produce documentaries, other people produce advertising. Um, we like to use brand money wherever we can, but not always. We like to work with nonprofits, but not always. Um, and, uh, and it can look like a two-minute anthem video, a 15-second blurb or a slogan for a festival. Um, but it goes all the way through, through documentary series, feature documentaries, virtual reality programming. Um, basically, we ask the question of um, what do we want the result to be? Is it behavioral change? Is it awareness? And what do we need to create in order to reach the people that um, something needs to reach and involve the people that need to be involved? Amazing. Well, um, <laughs> what an intro. And I think what we're, we're like four minutes in and uh, already, I think that that first, um, uh, you know, the first insight that I, I would hope that people uh, listening would hear has, has come, which is ideas plus empathy equals impact. I think that that motto can be applied across the board. You know, like this is my biggest issue with science is that I work with scientists uh, often who are good scientists, they're good people, 
but they just want to answer their small question. They and so for the sake of an NIH grant that they're writing or for the sake of, you know, whoever they're trying to impress on a funding line, they'll say one day this discovery will help people with spinal cord injury or traumatic brain injury or stroke or long COVID. Um, but really, they, they just want to answer that incremental question. So it's an idea without empathy. And yeah. we see very little impact from it because what, what their idea of impact is, is publishing a paper in a good journal. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, like, and you can probably speak to this, or I'm sure you could speak to this, is that idea of how we incentivize novelty, how we incentivize research, etc. A lot of times that's what people are chasing because that's the system that they know and are familiar with, right? That's the That's how they get their rewards. That's how they get recognition internally. And so the incentives um, can be broader. And I think people just need to be aware that um, sometimes getting recognition outside your field can put pressure on your field to recognize you more immediately. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And, um, uh, you know, I, I think um, when you're when you're boxed into a system, it's very easy to, um, well, it, it's the lowest effort thing to do is to work out the metrics and then just excel at those metrics without, oh, yes. by, whilst completely forgetting the mission, <laughs> you know? Um, and sometimes that's what I bang my head against the wall with in, in the work that I do is we, we work in a hospital, so our mission should be pretty clear. Um, but sometimes uh, it doesn't feel that way because of all of the metrics of success that you're told are important. Um, and it's even not even the dollar amount that you're bringing in sometimes, it's who's giving you that dollar amount um, that is the most important thing, which which can feel very counterproductive, uh, counterproductive to mission. Yeah, absolutely. I was having this discussion around metrics on my projects the other day, and I have like a, almost like a, a Harry Potter love child um, anagram. It's Malco. It's not. It's not <laughs> that does sound very Harry Potter. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely the offspring of some Harry Potter um, characters or something. But Malco for me is the metrics. There's usually like the data metrics, right? Is what people usually talk about is like how many eyeballs, you know, what's the percentages, give us the statistics. Um, in my world, that also applies to awards. How many awards did it get? What kind of awards? Where did they come from? But then I like to also look at these other components of like the Alco um, that come on the back of that, which is uh, what's the accessibility and availability of the content and the things potentially inside the content um, that you're bringing awareness to. Um, how, how, what's the longevity on the project for how long? Because I also feel that if something is new to you, then it's new. Um, whereas a lot of content campaigns, they come out for very short blasts of time. And I think that um, it's worth looking at what the ultimate longevity is for a project in order to reach the people that you need to reach. Sometimes like with fashion, something needs to get all the way through to from the fashion houses to the targets, right? Um, and and that's to me very 
apt because it needs to go from the innovators and the idea makers all the way through to the potential beneficiaries. Um, just as there's a lot of effort spent in making people aware of options for them via advertising in the healthcare system, um, which is like a big criticism of big pharma as a general rule. Um, we need to educate people about these other innovations that are happening so that they can reach their level so that they have understanding of it so their demand can be bottom up as well as top down. Um, and then uh, C is the conversations that it generates. What conversations does your program or your programming generate? Um, and what does that mean for the next time someone hears that idea? Right, The first time you hear an idea, it might be a little bit crazy, but it gives you the seed of something. So the next time you hear it, you might be more open to funding that idea, that lab, that research, etc. because it's not the first time you're hearing it. So it's not as out there as you thought it was maybe the first time. And you've also changed as a person and read different things and had different experiences in the interim. And then the O is the opportunities, like what opportunities were generated, what ideas did it spark in some young kid's head or in the family member of someone going through something. Um, and for them, that can be life-changing for them and the people around them. And so that's my little Malco metric, uh, Harry Potter metric system. <laughs> Harry Potter metric. Uh, yeah, like HPM. Okay, so we've already had at least two or three insights here and now a Harry Potter metric, which is yeah, right. amazing. Um, I mean, I, I feel the scientist in me has to ask, um, that is an incredible metric. It sounds tricky to measure. Um, is it tricky to measure or do you, you know, or do you just have targeted impact and evaluation plans for everything that you do focused around that rubric? Yeah, well, I mean, parts of it are easy to measure, right? So the metrics part, awards, eyeballs, those sorts of things. I mean, sure. yeah, I mean, they're problematic measuring systems, right? Nielsen, obviously problematic, but has been in existence for for decades. Um, media impressions, problematic, but has been in existence for advertisers for decades. Um, CPM and other kind of metrics for how we pay people for impressions online. Uh, YouTube has its own views metric. Facebook has a different views metric. So all those metrics are pretty easy to define. They just have to be a common playing field. And then the other metrics are also kind of easy to define. They just need to be captured, right? Like you, you know how long something stayed in the marketplace. You can affect it by having that content also play at like film festivals and other things and not be limited in your distribution approach, right? Um, you can create things for different platforms. You know, there's a buzzword around ecosystem. You can create an ecosystem of content but you can also put the content out into various ecosystems. Ecosystem doesn't just mean a digital universe with different social apps, right? It means um, getting into community screenings, getting into town halls, um, sponsoring panels or being part of panels or applying panels in different industries. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then, um, and the, the same thing regarding conversations and opportunities. Opportunities for sure, hard to measure, anecdotal at best. Um, but, um, but some of those things provide the color, right? That once you receive it, 
uh, once you get that letter from someone or a personal email from someone telling you like this more than robots campaign that we've got going on at the moment around STEM education for FIRST Robotics, which is an incredible program um, that 600,000 kids participate in. Um, and wow. it goes all the way from kindergarten to year 12, to year 12, um, to through high school <laughs> still haven't nailed the nomenclature of the u.s education system and um and you know we did this campaign for them called i am more than uh which is available on more than robots.org and uh, and um i've received some really incredible emails from parents talking about having seen it and what robotics and STEM has done, STEAM, what STEAM has done for their kids, um, giving them a place of belonging, um, giving them somewhere where they can uh, participate in any way, they sh way, shape or form. It's not just like, like the words say, it's not just robots, right? It's, um, there's marketing, there's design, there's all these different elements that unfortunately get lost in the science shuffle sometimes, but um, it's just a safe place essentially where uh, I know you like this term where kids can have some psychological safety, where they can explore and play and test and experiment um, without, you know, without real judgment. Um, it inspires alignment with other parties. Um, it's like they call it cooperation as opposed to competition. And it's just really healthy. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, what what's happening here is a, is a masterclass in how to measure your impact in the world. Um, and, and this is what a lot of people don't talk about. And, and I, the conversation uh, you know, part of it, um, you know, and how many ideas that you go on to inspire, I think, yeah, that that is hard to measure. But it, it's interesting as well, because I, I agree with you that there's, when you're onto something, you know, you're onto something, because so many people just hit you with emails saying, hey, you're onto something. It's like, it in the in the in some ways, it's the most subjective. But it's also you know, quasi-objective because you're like, hey, no one on this other project, no one was sending me a thousand emails saying this is, yeah. this is so important what you're doing, keep doing it. Yeah. Sometimes and, I just want to keep those projects and, and drop the rest. Yeah. And I think that that's indicative of the world at large is that to generate negative comments on something is fairly easy. To inspire people not to just click a like button, which is fine, but to also write to you, um, like you think about the percentages of people that may have been motivated, but life is busy, you know, to try and take time out to write to someone to let them know that something affected them is a real big yardstick. And if you kind of um, assume that of a thousand people watching a video that 50 of them are going to press like or 100 of them are going to press the like button. These are just, you know, made up numbers at yeah. the minute. But that one or two will write a comment or, you know, 10 will write a comment and two will write to the person who made it, right, Or and look up something and go further. Then if you look at those metrics of conversions of just comments and communications, 
you can impute from that a larger data set of people who are inspired by it but didn't take the time to write about it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where like intentionality and resources are really essential too, right? Because on that project on More Than Robots, we had, you know, six plus months of listening to psychologists talk about growth mindset and belonging and, um, and all these different kind of issues that kids are facing. And so there was a, a great deal of research that went into something that looks pretty simple in the end, but had this, you know, grounding and foundation behind it that kind of told us we were on the right path, right? That there was an insight there worth holding on to. And sit on the flip side, you have other projects like, um, project that, again, I know that you're familiar with, but the My Special Aflac Duck, which was this, you know, social robot. Whatever. There it is. <laughs> social robot for kids going through chemotherapy and cancer treatment. Um, and uh, it's an incredible tool. Um, and uh, made by the people at Sproutel. You know, we collaborated with them, with Carol Cohn on purpose, with Aflac. And there was so much research from different stakeholders that went into it at the front end and from the kids and their siblings and their parents, like all the, you know, all the different groups. And then at the end of it was also an intentionality to, to get white papers written, right? To actually see what the impact is of the duck and other uh, quote unquote distraction therapies and other things on, on the kid's cancer treatment journey. And so if you do have the resources for it, to go through that level of detail where you don't want to just make a difference, but you want to document whether you did or not objectively by a third party, um, it's pretty unique. It's pretty special. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> before we go too much further, I do want to take an opportunity. You, you've told us about what you're currently doing. I feel like a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of people feel that that people who disrupt fields work in a single field for a lot of their career. Um, can you tell everyone, you know, how many degrees do you have? Uh, <laughs> what is your training? Because clearly it's been a very, very linear path for you. You've, you've. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's like funny. It's like, I, I, I think about this sometimes and try and find out a way to talk about it. It's like, ultimately, I feel like I've just said yes whenever someone has approached me with anything that I think is mildly interesting or cool. And I must have massive FOMO or something, right? Like I just need to be <laughs> part of stuff that is going to be good or that I feel is going to be worthwhile. And that can be like impactful, but also just aesthetically might be just be something that's just beautiful that you just want to be a part of. And I think we all have an attraction to things like that but some of us are prepared to go outside our comfort zone to pursue it a little further, even if it might have some detrimental effects, maybe financially, for example, in the short term, and you hope it's all gonna work out, right? In the long term, um, touch wood. And then, um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, I have a, a science degree in pharmacology and toxicology. Um, I have a law degree. Um, um, both from Monash University in, in Melbourne, where I'm from. And then uh, when I came to the US, um, I went to the Lee Strasberg Theatre Institute in New York. So I kind of went backwards. And a lot of people go there and then they do little law school afterwards. But that doesn't work okay. out. I went the other way. I went to law Take school. Take notes, young innovators. 
<laughs> yeah, and uh, and really displeased my parents by going into theatre school after law school, and then um, and then did a, a program in screenwriting at UCLA. Following that, um, also did a leadership program, an innovation fellowship at Kellogg at Northwestern, and um, and as far as academics go, um, also now like part of the kind of advisory team behind the bio design program at UCLA um, that I pop in and out of just because um, Jennifer McKaney, who started that program, is a force of nature. And uh, she had gone through the Stanford University biodesign program, decided to start something similar at UCLA where they combine um, fellows into teams from the Anderson School of Business, the Geffen School of Medicine and the School of Engineering uh, to work on projects over the course of an academic year uh, that can potentially have great impact in commu helping communities, usually around med tech, software, hardware. It's pretty fascinating. So staying tangentially related to the academic system a little bit. Amazing. And I mean, um, I feel like uh, we, we've had somewhat similar backgrounds um, in terms of a lot of people probably looking at our CVs, scratching their heads and thinking, what does this person want to be? Um, and for me, I, I'm curious to know if it's the same for you, but for me, it was always, um, you know, what seems useful right now at this moment and yeah. clumping together with some of my other skills what's going to make me a useful human <laughs> you know just someone who yeah. solve problems and do things like quite rapidly was always the intention behind everything that i was doing um even if it felt random does that no well, that's cool i like i don't think it's the same for me i think that's interesting so you, you were conscious of you becoming by having a physical therapy or a physio background in australia that you know um, and then going towards neuroscience and those disciplines, um, you you feel an intentionality that you were just becoming a better person to be in service of others. Yeah, well, you know, I, I knew, um, and, and this is quite funny if you look at the bulk of my work now, saying that I knew where I wanted to go then because uh, because a lot of the work I do now bears no resemblance to what I wanted to do then. But um, I knew I wanted to uh, help people with neurological disabilities to get access to better care. That was yeah. pretty early on um, as a physical therapist or a physiotherapist, depending on the where the three people who are listening are located. Um, <laughs> I, I thought I want to help people with, with stroke and spinal cord injury. I think we can do better than we're currently doing. I'm going to get into the space. Um, then I realized I didn't know any, you know, we just, we got two years of neurophysiology training in, in school, which is more than uh, most places give. Yeah. But I was like, it just scratched the surface. So, okay, let's do a PhD in basic neurophysiology. Then I started to realize, okay, we need, I need a computational background because otherwise yeah. it's going to be a mess. Jump over to America. Okay. I need to do like, experiment you know i need to learn engineering skills and do do experimental work that involves engineering and building electrodes and all these sorts of things jumped around a little bit yeah um, and but each time it's been you know uh I, i've done two things i've made the decision of do i need to be an expert in this 
or I, or do I need to just learn the language and then yes. move on? Because, yes. like, for instance, for uh, you know, working with biased statisticians, I I pretty quickly came to the determination I don't need to learn all this math. They yeah. <laughs> what I need to be able to do is have a smart, you know, an intelligent conversation with a biased statistician where. Yeah. I can explain my point of view in his or her language. Um, yeah. That's that's the skill that I needed. Yeah. Um, and so as soon as I got that skill, I jumped ship because I was like, I don't need to, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I've done enough linear algebra. I don't need to do anything. That's any really cool. But no, that's, that was yeah, it really sounds like it's, yeah. yeah, a toolkit approach. Yes, yeah, right? like, totally a toolkit approach. I just yeah, wanted, really, really yeah. cool. Yeah, I don't think it's the same for me. I think mine is more, um, uh, in a way, selfish, but also leads you to be in better service of others. But I think it's more curiosity driven, right? Um, yours seems to be more, a little bit more strategic in terms of what you need. Um, maybe you had a clear, a clearer vision for, like, like you were saying about neurophysiology and stroke and rehab, like that there was a, a forward thinking there. Um, so for me, I, I would say I, I would say tumbling down the rabbit hole <laughs> rather than forward thinking because I, starting at the PT side, I was like, I don't know what I need. Yeah, but I, I started to unravel the problem. I was like, I need these skills and these skills and these skills yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. I think my rabbit hole and diving was like, that's really interesting. I can't let go of that. That's really interesting. I can't let go of that. That's really interesting. I have to say yes, even while I'm still doing this over here. So, um, and that to me was always like, people used to joke even when I lived in Australia that there was no such thing as downtime. Like people would go, what do you, like that was a buzzword back then. I was like, what do you do in your downtime? And they, then someone else would love, Elliot doesn't have any downtime. <laughs> you know, like, because I was just obsessed with, um, obsessed you know, to the point of not sleeping straight, like obsessed um, with reading things, watching things, looking at things, speaking to people, interviewing people, gathering data about them, or gathering research on them before I spoke to them, um, knowing all I could know so that I got to a place that I thought that they hadn't got to before if someone else had interviewed them previously. You know, I was really obsessed with... Um, with finding out information from people who were passionate about the things that they were working on. And, um, you know, it was a real driving force. Like I felt a sense of like contagion, you know, like I was, I, I, I almost like every person I spoke to in depth who I, whose work I respected or whose, um, personality I got to know, um, uh, you know, there's it, almost like a philosophy where you're kind of falling in love with them because you're so entrenched in the conversation. But what you're in love with is the, the energy, right? The knowledge exchange, the dynamic of finding out what really makes someone tick, um, what they really care about. Um, and so for me, I think having, having the toolkit was almost accidental, but super... Uh, beneficial if in that 2020 hindsight way of like saying oh wow I have you know studied psychology and pharmacology and toxicology and that gives me an ability to converse and have discourse with people who have that language like you're saying right and then because I'm looking to create plays and screenplays and journalistic pieces for magazines and screen and television and other things on this side 
I need to make sure that the person who is receiving that information can understand it. So there's some sort of translational aspect, right, to borrow a, a medical term, um, or a, some sort of um, adaptation that happens where you are um, taking something that uh, usually one set of speakers understands, so they have that language, and you're translating it for different groups and making it accessible and available. And you don't realize you have that skill until after, you know, when stuff has been successful, you can look back, right? It's like a bit um, egotistical to think that that's your discipline. But when you look back and over time, it's like, oh, wow, yeah, I really think that that's what I do is like, I can take some really, you know, interesting, novel, complex kind of scientific or other ideas and bring them back to a level that we can all access in some way. And hopefully different people can access it in different ways and get what they need out of it. Um, but hopefully that all serves to inspire um, something a little better or create impact for something a little bit uh, better than it was yesterday. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I really, really admire about the work that you do, about everything that you do, um, uh, and um, I aspire to it, in fact, is uh, I've always really loved the fact that despite all the hard work that you're doing, all the incredible projects, I mean, you've named two projects, but you've done a million projects that have all, in my opinion, had the, you know, a very intentional and noticeable impact on the field that you're trying to impact, but you never make yourself the story. Um, and to come back to your earlier formula about, you know, um, impact being an idea plus empathy, we should probably throw intention in there as well, because um, I think that, again, to, to sort of come back to science, like a lot of people want to write their names on things. Um, and I'm often, you know, constantly find myself saying to people, I don't care <laughs> who yeah. does this or who puts their name on this so long as the work gets done. Yeah. That's a very rare sentiment in science. Is it as rare in documentary film? <laughs> I feel like it might be. I don't know about documentary film. I think documentary film is like usually a subset of people with better intentions, right? Yeah. Documentary obviously now has become like a much broader um, group, like, you know, true crime and all these other things that are super right. successful and sports stocks, which are a subset of, you know, obviously a subset that are more um, driven by higher entertainment value um you know there are other things that you know people might be and and you know there's a, a knowledge too that if you can build your own brand um so to speak that you are more likely to you know build a business um in this environment where we celebrate you know celebrity um i think it really depends on the comfort zone of the person but yeah i think it's rare as a general rule amongst people who are willing to take a back seat sometimes to let a message shine um now not to say i don't have a healthy ego when i get the recognition i really do enjoy it like i do i do get a a dopamine hit yeah when someone calls you out and says you've done a good job but um 
yeah, sometimes maybe even sabotage yourself on the road to not wanting to put yourself in the center of it. And, you know, quite frankly, I kind of wish that I did. Um, I was more ego driven. Uh, I think it would then give me more opportunities to talk about the work. Um, but there are some things now that where I just feel a sense of urgency, especially around um, some, some, you know, different issues that I probably would not normally tackle had people not come to me. They're not things that I would have sought out on my own. Like I did a piece with um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar last year about um, trailblazing black athletes and the impact they had on him. Now, there's no reason people should come to me for that. <laughs> but as a kid who grew up with um, with a, 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 a like a aspirational quality around basketball and especially the Lakers, um, and had posters of magic on my wall and Kareem on my sisters and all that sort of stuff on my sister's walls, you know, like I couldn't turn down that opportunity. And I also knew I'd be a good steward of it and not just in terms of telling the story. Cause obviously, yes, there's probably some people who have like more of a personal history that could have had some other insights, but I knew that I would assemble a team around it that were, um, diverse and, uh, reflective of society and um, and that he would feel comfortable and that um, I would approach it with uh, a humility as much as possible, you know, despite any potential backlash later on that, why are you doing this? Well, you know, this is what I do. Um, and I think I have something to add here, but I also think that I bring enough people around me to make sure that I'm not operating in a silo of ego that thinks that I can, you know, tell this story. Uh, myself um and so you just have to take that collaborative approach similarly on black boys right like they're on all the articles all the q a's those sorts of things on a film that came out as an nbc peacock original like i'm way in the background like i'm not appearing in any press to do with that um but that's just the role of being you know for want of a better term a good ally um uh, with regard to social justice or um similarly with little miss sumo around gender equity uh with our hero hiyori khan who wanted to become the first professional female sumo wrestler in japan uh, a national sport in which 50 percent of the population is forbidden from participating at a professional level and um again like i'm not front and center on it nor should i be um, but it's just something I wanted to make sure happened that could be supported, got through. Um, we have a film coming out about an affordable housing crisis in in the in 2023 in uh, April May. Um, you know, and it's just like there are issues out there that you just want to talk about. You want to make ensure that people have a voice. Um, and if I can use some of my toolkit to uh, ensure that they get centered um, and have those opportunities and can somehow help you know lead them to that place and give them some sort of way to translate so that people uh hear it in a certain way and maybe um change some behavior you know then then that's all good amazing and, and yeah. i mean i think everything that you just touched on just now is something that is so far from the 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 sort of radar of most scientists and most people trying to create healthcare innovation and yet it's so important for for impact you know um the idea of community co-design for a solution the idea of involving the community in every aspect of design when you're when you're 
designing an experiment, building a technology, you know, this is often lost. Um, you know, I, I can't tell you, you know, I, I sit through a lot of health technology pitches and I can't tell you how often it starts with a very healthy looking uh, CEO telling you that their grandmother had a stroke and they observed one struggle, you know, and now they're, you know, they're out there crusading to solve the problem. And I'm like, okay, well, other than your grandmother, who else did you ask if this was a problem? And, you know, how many other people with stroke are in your, your community and how many people are actively a part of your product and your company and your, you know, um, and time and time again, I see it just stop and innovation in its tracks because they were solving a problem that no one no one in the community asked for and they didn't really have any business solving other than that they're a tech bro from you know san francisco and they you know witnessed a hardship in a family member um yeah i think that there's two problems there right one is that there's a formulaic approach to pitching that someone had that they're copying right and uh make it personal and then tell you tell people about it like what what that motivating force was what that founder's story is but i think your point as well is like there's nothing wrong with that being motivated by a single story right but yeah. like as you're saying but it's like what you then do to authentically pursue a field right impact in a field and a field is always more than one person right it's multiple stakeholders um and you really need to do that in order to like it's just market research right like a lot of the nih grants and other kind of um you know there are some science federation nsf grants i think that really reward that market research being done how many stakeholders have you talked to up and down the field supply chain uh consumers um patients uh the nurses and nursing staff who might actually be the ones connecting the device from you know from its presence in the hospital to the patient and what they're seeing like there's like i think there are some programs that really take that really that do that well um but yeah i totally agree is there's a formulaic approach that i think is a little bit busted because there was so much money in the space for a while that you just kind of followed what worked and um that led to that tech bro-ish mentality and then there's that yeah that ego too that you're solving a problem without really having spent time in the community that's why uh they should watch more family or something <laughs> survey the top 100 answers yeah absolutely and um i, I mean and to the the point of how decisions get made. Let's talk about the fact that um, until recently and, and still very, very infrequently, do we see people with lived experience actually sitting on NIH study sections to decide oh, yeah. who gets funding for their disease, you know? So um, where we've got $30 billion of federal taxpayer money being spent to solve stroke and spinal cord injury and traumatic brain injury and and I'm, I'm focusing on the neuro ones but you know everything yeah uh, and we we have very very rarely do we have people who actually have lived experience of the disease sitting in on these sessions and saying this is an important problem for me or this is not an important problem for me um yeah i had a really great experience um 
at an international Parkinson's disease conference where um, uh, it was basically one-third patients or people with Parkinson's, one-third researchers, one-third clinicians. And the conversations, these intersectional conversations that were happening in this conference where patients were standing up in the middle of a talk saying, we don't care about this symptom. Like, find find a new thing to work on because, like, this isn't, this is not an inconvenience to our lives. Help us with tremor. Help us with getting off the toilet. Help it, you know, like, it was, it was yeah. That's amazing. I'm being honest, but it was also, you know. I don't know how many anecdotes start with, I had this great experience at a Parkinson's conference. Yeah, <laughs> not, not, not many. Not many <laughs> but I think that's right. That word that you use there, which I haven't used in a long time, but that is so apt, is intersectionality. And, you know, I, I think that there's a, uh, like the people who founded the IMALS uh, movement, they were politicians who the husband was then diagnosed with ALS. And then he testified to Congress and went around to the politicians to drum up support. Now, if he had not had that intersectionality, they wouldn't have gotten that bill passed, that assured extra funding coming into the ALS movement. Um, And I think their name is Stephen Sandra, um, but I could be wrong. But um, That sounds right to me as well. But they're pretty incredible. But you're you're right. Like, it's people who are at those intersectionalities. It's kind of like you talking about your certain toolkit, me talking about the access that I'm able to have across, you know, media and science, um, and then... But you know, as a gift, other things as well. But um, but I think that that's right. I think that takes those people who have that intersectionality, like you, as you know, because you were a, a, a star on the uh, the first episode of it was Innovation Squared, which we did during COVID, funded by Amgen, um, and it was this idea that people who work on a molecular level don't often get to talk with people who are working on innovation on a on an external, um, more engineering-driven level. And um, and that during COVID, we were in these Zoom calls running through agenda that where we would just be hitting things off and, and taking things off a list of things to do and then jumping on another Zoom call and running through another agenda. But what we were missing were those in-between moments where we met people outside of our direct circle of influence or our direct team right and with our direct team we are of like minds to some extent in the work and we uh don't know what we don't know and we're working towards innovation but it's probably incremental but if we're forced to have a conversation with someone even within the same company who works in a different section but certainly with people outside like if you're talking to relatives etc when you're talking about what you do as in terms of research you have to do it to talk about it in a way that's relatable and when you do that you give them the opportunity to come up with free associations to other things in other industries that they can offer back to you as an observation that might then unlock something for you or enable you to look across to the gaming industry and borrow that tool that they've got and have spent decades working on, or the social media industry where they've kind of laser focused into how to get behavior behavior changed um, so that you focus on something more and longer and you can borrow that a little bit. And I think that that's where we get that intersectionality where we have those opportunities to have cross-industry conversations is where we can really, you know, 
more often even have these giant leaps of innovation because we are breaking through our silo looking at these other things that are happening in the world where people have worked really hard on these things and have absolute dominance in a certain field but it's being used for a completely different purpose so we just need to be kind of kept kept open to those experiences and have those conversations across uh, across groups to the patients and hearing what they work with what they like working with what tools they like using that might be completely unrelated to the ones that you're using to to treat them but maybe you can integrate them somehow yeah absolutely and and i mean i i also think uh it, it's probably worth a shout out um to uh, some, uh, you know, a newer community that I've been working with, which is the, you know, complex chronic illness community, long COVID, myalgic encephalomyelitis, Lyme disease, um, you know, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, these sorts of conditions, um, which, well, used to be rare and now post-viral illness certainly is not a rare disease anymore. It, it's, it's affecting a large proportion of the U.S. population. Um, but it's, it's for the longest time not been anyone's problem in mainstream healthcare. <clears throat> so interestingly, when I speak to this patient population, I go to them for scientific ideas because they're, they, they're reading widely. They're reading everything. They're, they're, they've already, this community has already adopted the posture of no one is going to help me. Help is not coming. I'm going to help myself. And so they're reading everything from, you know, metabolic and mitochondrial dysfunction all the way through to, you know, uh, what's happening with these new microclots that could be circulating in the body and viral persistence and virology and, and um, stuff that I have no experience with. And the, the way that information is being, um, uh, it, it is being communicated has really, it's turned on its head. Suddenly they're the experts who I'm like, hang on, <laughs> start slower, use smaller words, you know, and, and, and work me through it. I love that. Um, and it, it's been such, well, it's been a great experience for me because I love learning. It's been a humbling experience because there's so much to upskill on in such a short amount of time. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's been a very singular and unique. Uh, uh, yeah. There's a, there's a, yeah, there's a person who I admire greatly. Her name's uh, Katya Moritz. She's a, a, a doctor um, based in Florida, uh, originally from South America. And she has had an illness that was either not diagnosed or misdiagnosed for a very, very long time and set about um, creating a documentary about people who are undiagnosed. What she said to me that really resonated is that if you don't have a diagnosis, um, the worst thing that can happen to you is that you die without having any revelation, without anyone pinpointing it. Because then all the testing, all the data, all the different things that you've tried all amount to zero because there was never any crystallization of that information around a, a result. And so all the things you put yourself through to try and get ahead or to try and get back to quote unquote normal um, are not that all those data sets are not worth anything 
right and so um so it was really kind of a thing where it's like you want to feel a sense of belonging right it's like and you want answers but not just for yourself if you're feeling you know magnanimous and uh, altruistic but like i think that um you need answers in order to process but you also need answers so that you feel like all the things that lead up to it were of value and um and it is that these these undiagnosed communities who are willing to go the extra mile to and provide whatever data needs to be provided and i think that that's a problem with med tech uh with with um with tech at the moment consumer facing technology at the moment in terms of all these sensors and things that glucose monitors and uh you know all these different things that we're wearing it's generally in terms of data sets what we're receiving is we're receiving the very healthy who want to know everything and optimize everything and focused on longevity and being their best selves and all this sort of stuff. We're seeing the fit CEO syndrome at the minute, right? With Bezos and all these guys who are super yeah. jacked, right? And everyone over at the Mount Sinai office for sure. And, um, and then you're seeing the people who are on the other end of the spectrum who have who are going through some very real things that are feeling suffering and are just willing to give their data so that they can get answers. But it's this middle group that we're missing the everyday people. Right. And it's similar with neuroscience. I imagine is that oftentimes you're looking at brain. And when I talked to Dr. Sanjay Gupta, who's uh, uh, even though he's on CNN, he's still a practicing neurosurgeon at Grady in Atlanta. Um, he was saying this is that oftentimes like our neuroscience comes from diseased brains and brains in trauma mm -hmm. and like the good thing about what's happened in the last 20 years with MRIs and other things is that we've been able to study healthy brains to some extent and that's a new thing that people don't appreciate like how can we optimize healthy brains and what they're doing how do we make them healthy when we don't have no kind of baseline for what a healthy brain is if we're only dealing with trauma or disease right and that often happens from a funding perspective too it only comes in when there's some sort of catastrophic event the funding pours in but um on the regular day-to-day -day when we could be doing something and really investing in something heavily we don't have the same motivation yeah you find that to be true yeah i mean i i i think that um there's there's so much nuance in what is healthy um when you when you feed something like this into a capitalism model the main issue is that like you need everyone to have one definition of healthy right so um you know if you're selling whoop bands you know and you're telling people when to exercise and when to sleep you're not making any room for the fact that someone might have myalgic encephalomyelitis or uh long covid and when you tell them to exercise that is akin to telling them to drink a quart of alcohol like you're going to damage them and poison them by by exercising um, rather than actually, you know, uh, optimize what they're doing. And I think that our current lens of, of medicine, we're really, well, we're, we're really adequate at dealing with the big things. Someone has a stroke, something you can see on an MRI, we know what to do. Someone has a heart attack, we know what to do. 
um, someone has a more subtle illness. So they're not, they, they don't have a giant lesion on their MRI, but they're neurodivergent in some way, whether that be uh, they can't tolerate cognitive exertion without triggering a lot of post-exertional symptoms, or they have an autism spectrum disorder, um, or, you know, they're, they're simply incredibly introverted such that social, you know, social interaction makes them very, very drained. Yeah. These are all different, you know, forms of normal and healthy, just on a different spectrum. And, um, and, but we've got one wearable that's saying, get up, get on the treadmill, get, you know, do this, do that, go to sleep. Um, and, and it works for a subset of the population and nobody else. But we're like, this is what wellness looks like. Um, and we get enraged when someone like Lizzo says, hey, this isn't necessarily what wellness looks like. She's like, you know, like I, I have the body shape that I have, but I can outdance all of you, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and yet the, the rage and the backlash that she sparks when she says things like that, you know, how dare this person who doesn't conform to what we think healthy looks like state that she is healthy. <laughs> How dare she, you know? Yeah. Um, this is a big reckoning that we need to, to get to in, in healthcare and, and health technology, this understanding of nuance, this understanding of, uh, well, this understanding also of the fact that um, for the longest time, uh, all of these experiments that ingest a whole bunch of data from electronic health records and tell us what the standards are, these are one, one side of the story only. You yes. only get what the clinician wrote down. Super skewed. And second, because we're in America and because America, you know, has the history that it has, these data sets are racist, sexist, and ableist. There is, you know, th this isn't an opinion of mine. This is a fact. There has been no shortage of really beautifully conducted peer-reviewed trials showing that when you take EHR data and train an AI, you know, to be a doctor, that doctor is racist, sexist, and ableist, um, you know? Um, and it, yeah. That, I mean, AI unleashed, I mean, we've seen it a few times even, you know, on Twitter and other things as a as a collection, when something is collecting language that is made public, again, you've got to think that the people who are most likely to give public opinion on something are people who are screaming about something, right? Exactly. On either side, screaming yeah. on the woke side, screaming on the racist side, but they're screaming, right? And again, it's the people in the middle who are missing out. I remember like John Stewart saying, um, you know, in this polemical world where you've got two people who are kind of just screaming to be heard just for the sake of being heard a lot of the time, right? Sometimes their position has been defined by an ability to be heard or an ability to be seen or a desire to be seen, right? As opposed to what they truly even believe in sometimes. And uh, he's like, we need all the moderates of the world to get up and start screaming. Now, this is counterintuitive, right? But you're not gonna, you're not gonna have that reckoning without it. But it's yeah. like uh, in this sort of world, right, where we feed into these, uh, certainly, certainly in our media bubbles. But um, we've heard about that enough over the last four years. But it's like, it really just needs to be like these, 
media bubbles generated where we are finding those commonalities, where we are celebrating the humanity of us all, uh, that it's not, you know, these artificially constructed narratives of like who belongs on what side of what line and defines a whole bunch of different metrics for us. Um, and but it does need to move into that more personalized realm right and that's going to be hard and from a resource standpoint going to be really taxing but we need to invest in it in order to serve people right it needs to move towards um like sometimes maybe even personalized storytelling but i'm sure on the medicine side on you know there needs to be some sort of reckoning with the fact that the more we know about people the more we know how different everyone is along along a spectrum mm -hmm. and that there are going to just need to be a lot more customizable options or combinations of options that are that some group of people is taking the time to assess and to then you know stick with i remember hearing about um people checking in in japan like 20 30 years ago to have an assessment every year around their health like that was to me was like almost like revolutionary you know we we are in a world in the us a lot of the time and certain other countries where you only see medical professionals if you're really 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 sick right um and you know it's just not it's just not feasible to develop a healthy culture um if we have those reward systems in place. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're coming up on time. I think as we've proven many, many, many times before, we could talk forever if we <laughs> were given the option. Um, so I, I think we, to, to finish up, I always hate when people ask uh, other people to rank their most impactful or their most you know so i'm not going to ask you to rank your okay you're not going to do it i was uh, i thought you were prefacing the fact that you hate it and then you're going to ask me to i do would it. never i would yeah. never but i i would ask it you know for the for the sort of final message as we we walk out when you think back on some of the projects that have been the most impactful what are the things that stick out you know for projects that really moved the needle on a field or were important and i know that you've had a lot um what what are the sort of common things that really jump out at you about uh, the feeling that you got as as the project was taking place, and you know um, uh, what made it feel special in the moment um, yes. that you knew it was going to be an impactful project? Yeah, I, I, that's a really really good question, um, which is just me buying time because <laughs> it is a good question, but I think that. Uh, but it's also me buying time to think about it because um, I haven't reflected on that synthesis of what it makes me feel, right? And I think a lot of times I love when um, someone who has gone unnoticed or uncelebrated is then held up as a source of really valuable information or a real valuable story that you can um, relate to, be inspired by, etc. And I think that um, at the moment we've got this documentary out called For Tomorrow uh, that we worked with Sid Lee on. It's a project that was started by Hyundai Motor Company and the UNDP, uh, United Nations Development Program, getting together to celebrate grassroots innovation. 
um, which means that the, the people who are closest to problems are the ones coming up with the solutions for them. And often they're um, less formally educated than what we typically consider to be a source for innovation, right? They don't come from a massive institution academically, a big tech company, et cetera. They don't have those resources. But what they have is local knowledge and a will to do something about it. And I think that that is um, across different things, whether it's my special athletic duck, having the will to create something for the kids going through it, as opposed to things that Aflac had done before, which were also awesome, but they were sponsoring professor chairs and research and other things, but they wanted to do something that was for the kids. And it was like they had a legacy in the space of investing in childhood cancer. And, and to then underwrite it and be prepared to go through that process was incredible. And to be part of that team, watching these kids give feedback on the duck that they wanted it to purr like a kitten, right? That's an insight that you would not get from any other stakeholder. So the duck does purr like a kitten. It has a vibration. It's pure chaos. And, and that is so beautiful, right? The fact that our For Tomorrow program, um, Hyundai have BTS, the K-pop group as ambassadors, um, I managed to bring in um, Daisy Ridley from the Star Wars universe to narrate the film, um, but all in service of providing access, generating interest so that people pick up the story, whether in its full documentary form or in trailer form or whatever, just to get to know some of these innovators. Because um, there's one guy, Anil Gupta, who's the head of something called the Honeybee Network that has documented like a million micro innovations. And he says, minds on the margin are not marginal minds. And I love that. And it's super reflective of what I, what I, I kind of have this process of discovery when we're going through these stories and finding people to interview and, and, and talk to about things. But essentially what you're doing is you're providing a lens to people who just have the will to do something. And I think that that to me is super exciting. It's like, because it's universal. We don't have to be part of some massive academic institution. Oftentimes we do feel overwhelmed uh, by all the issues that are going on in the world and think that we don't have a place in the world to solve them personally. But there are all these opportunities for us to collaborate, for us to align, for us to state what we're interested in and then be connected to others. Right, it comes back to like I said, I guess essentially this kind of four P's thing that that we formulated or that I formulated, which is that if you have a passion around something and can apply it, then that application is your purpose. Right, purpose is that applied passion towards something. But if you tell people about your purpose, if you tell people about the thing that you're working on, right, via social media via just family members then they'll generate activity that then brings people towards you who want to do the same thing and with them anything is possible right so passion leads to purpose leads to people leads to possibility and i just truly believe that to be always true mm -hmm. is that you just need to generate you need to generate that will that desire to have an impact, to have an effect, to have a solution, to have an insight, to have a little piece of knowledge, to have a curiosity. And that that then takes care of a whole bunch of other things. It's this massive snowball effect. And so any project that has that revelation where it's like, oh, we didn't need all this stuff in order to generate something super meaningful. 
Yes, we do sometimes, right? Like high-end medicine, precision medicine, etc. Yes, you need those things to come together. But you can have an impact even on those things without being educated in that field by providing insights, like you're saying, from the patient population, from the data sets, from the yeah. from being a different stakeholder. So there, there's always some room for you. There's somewhere for you to play. There's something for you to get interested in, to follow, to pursue. Um, there's no limitation other than your own will. And if we can only inspire people to check in on their purpose once in a while, like we do with their diet and their exercise, rather than focus on the behavior, focus on the motivator, right? And once you have that purpose, the behavior will come with it because you'll be driven to, you'll be so energized by that that maybe you're not eating throughout the day. You're only eating at key intervals or to fuel what you're doing right? You might still have preference preferences for fried chicken like I do, but <laughs> in the general sense, you're trying to stay healthy in order to achieve your objectives, right? And same with exercise. If you've got a purpose, you're much more likely to get up and move and get things done, right? And so find those places of community, those places of belonging, find those places of interest and pursue them. But we all need to be asking each other a little bit more about, you know, where we're finding a sense of purpose or a sense of engagement. I love it. Wow. What a, what a way to end. Um, that's, I, I, you know, I, I don't think I've ever heard it stated so clearly how to be an innovator, how to, um, how to, you know, really understand if you're on the right track or not, because it, it is a very, you know, it is a very, very hard thing to navigate, but the, the, the four P's, and um, you know, uh, minds on the margins are not marginal minds. I think that is what every academic health system needs to understand. And and I think that frequently, you know, uh, to your caveats of you know the understanding that sometimes you do need billions of dollars in precision medicine. I, I wish more people understood that that is fine but there shouldn't be such an imbalance between how much money we put into these highly precise, cold, incremental innovation science ventures versus these disruptive, passion-forward, purpose-forward ventures. And um, I, yeah, I, uh, I love the way you framed that for, for uh, the end of our chat. And um, this has been great. Always an honor and a pleasure and a learning experience chatting with you Elliot so thank you feeling is truly mutual thanks Dave this is disrupting innovation with Dr. David Petrino